0: to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips.
1: Hi, and welcome to Psych Up Live. Thanks for joining me. Today's show is about the connection between guns and suicide. It is not intended to sway your opinion about gun ownership. It is intended to save lives by preventing suicide. It is probably hard to believe that suicide occurs twice as often as homicide in the US and that the majority of gun deaths are not from homicide or mass shootings or terrorism. The majority of gun deaths are suicide deaths. What do we really need to know about suicide to be more effective in its prevention? Our guest today is Dr. Michael Anestis. He's a leading expert on guns and suicide and the author of the book, Guns and Suicide, An American Epidemic. He's an associate professor of psychology and director of the Suicide and Emotion Dysregulation Lab at the University of Southern Mississippi. His research interests include suicide risk factors and firearms, the capacity for suicide, pain response, and emotion dysregulation. He was awarded the 2018 Edwin Schneidman Award for the American, from the American Association of Suicidology for Early Career Achievement in Suicide Research. Dr. Michael Anestis, it is my pleasure to welcome you to PsychUp Live. Thanks for having me. Um, Mike, let's um, set the stage by sharing some of your important facts about the demographics. Who commits suicide? What part of the country? What is the choice or the method used? Let's speak a bit about that.
2: Yeah, certainly. So there are some pretty uh, wacky but telling stats about suicide, Um about 75 to 80% of all suicide attempts in the United States are by women, and that's really a global phenomenon. But it flips around in terms of who dies by suicide. So three quarters to 80% of all suicide deaths in the U.S. are by men. Um, in terms of where, uh, it, it varies depending on how you're chopping up the country, but suicide's more common in rural areas than in urban ones. Um, areas like the Mountain West have really high suicide rates, uh, whereas areas like the Northeast tend to have lower ones. Um, and what that maps onto, in large part, and and, and consistent with what you and I are going to talk about today, um, is gun ownership. It's not the full story, but um, more than half of all suicide deaths in the United States are are by firearms, Um, and this is true even though they're used in less than 5% of all suicide attempts, Um, and so where there are more firearms, there are more firearm suicide attempts, uh, and subsequently, there's higher suicide rates. Um, So the story of American suicide is typically one of middle-aged or older adult men who die on their first suicide attempt using a firearm that they've likely owned for a long time, and that individual is probably someone that people around them didn't know was at risk for suicide until they were
1: dead. Mm. Now, just to go back to the um, difference between men and women, so more women make an attempt why are they not dying by suicide, Michael?
2: A lot of it has to do with choice of method. Um, and so by far the most common suicide attempt method for anyone in the United States is is intentional overdose. Um, and that's particularly true for women. And it, part of the reason that doesn't bear out for deaths, though, is because it's a really low lethality method. And what I mean by that is only about two out of every or two or three percent of all Uh, intentional overdoses or suicide attempts that are intentional overdoses actually result in death. So the vast majority of folks who attempt um, using uh, a medication will survive, whereas firearms they die. Um, and so uh, men are far more likely to choose firearms, which have an 85 to 95% lethality rate. And so you see a flip in terms of who's most likely to try, but who's most likely to die. And so what folks don't realize about suicide is that it's, it's really hard. Um, and if you think about that, Evolutionarily speaking, it makes sense. If it was really easy to die, um, our species wouldn't continue. Much far more miserable people would be dead, um, and it would be hard for our species to continue to exist, right? And so suicide requires you to overcome a, a pretty natural and important barrier of, of self-preservation, Um And and the argument is, and I suspect you and I will get into this in more detail later on, is that folks have to be capable of doing that. And the things that go into being capable for suicide tend to be elevated in men more than women. So it leads them to be more likely to choose highly lethal methods. And so they might not attempt as often, but when they do, they're far more likely to die.
1: Okay. Now, one other question I had was a finding in your book, which was, is this correct? 90% of people who have a failed suicide attempt, Mike, they do not make another attempt or they never die by suicide. Correct me on that.
2: So it's that they will never die. So about 70 percent, and these are sort of loose estimates, right? It's hard to have an exact number on this, but the generally agreed upon number is that about 70 percent of folks who attempt suicide will never attempt again, and 90 percent will never die by suicide. <clears throat> and so what that means is is if you stop someone from using a specific method at a certain time, there's a good chance you stop them from ever using any method at, at any time, um, it, suicide isn't our 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 best predictor of future suicide attempts is how many times you've tried in the past. But it's a terrible predictor. Most people who die die on their first attempt. In fact most of them die in their first attempt with a firearm. Um, okay. And so the people who repeat their suicide attempts tend to use the same method over and over again. It's not the, you know, it's not the same story for everybody. There's, there's changes for everyone, but it isn't that they tend to use a medication and then that wasn't really likely to work. And so then they try something that's more likely to work. That can happen. People tend to just have a vision of what suicide is and a method in mind that, that they're comfortable with. And that's the method they'll use in multiple attempts. Um, and so, if you stop them, they won't try again, they won't escalate, um, they just will stop. And, and this is particularly important with firearms because, as I said earlier, almost all of them result in death, right? So they don't, they don't get a second chance. So most people try something like overdose and they survive and they never attempt again. Or if they do, they attempt with overdose again and chances are they'll survive. Um, the folks who try using a firearm don't get that second chance. Uh, they just die.
1: So it's maybe important for our listeners to hear right now, and you correct me, less people attempt suicide with guns than the other methods like an overdose. But because of the lethality of guns, more people die by suicide by firearms.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. So a couple ways to think about this. Um, One is how common the methods are used. So overdose is more than half of all suicide attempts, but it's only 16% of the deaths in most years. Mm. So it's way overrepresented in how often people are trying, but actually doesn't make up that much of the folks who are dying. Firearms are the polar opposite. They make up less than 5% of all suicide attempts, but they make up more than half of all deaths. So people are almost never using them. And yet, More often than not, if they die, that's what they used. Um, And so it's, yeah, it's a a matter of the lethality of the method um, makes a difference on that outcome.
1: Okay. So let's go into the question people ask is why did they do it? And what, you have some wonderful uh, material on theories in your book. Maybe you can share some of the myths and some of the theories um, that really make this whole situation makes some sense.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, when I talk about theories of suicide or what people do in general, I'm not talking about any one person's story, right? So everybody's suicide is different, and everyone has their own sort of unique past and, and identity. So I don't want to, you know, oversimplify someone. So if someone's listening and say, that doesn't sound like my loved one, you're almost certainly right, right? Um, but you can still learn a lot from zooming out and talking about, well, in general, what does this look like for people? And, and there are a couple of theories that have really driven how I think about this and how a lot of other scientists who do what I do think about this. One of them is Thomas Joyner's interpersonal theory of suicide. And the other sort of came out of that. And it's, it's David Klonsky and Alexis May's three-step theory of suicide. And what both of these say is that what makes someone attempt or want to die by suicide um, is a couple of things. One of them is, is your desire, and, and I think all of us kind of intuitively know this, and neither theory says they're saying something totally new, but what they say is is there's the desire for death and there's the ability to do it. And so the de- desire side is the first part of your question, Suzanne, which is what what makes someone want to do this? Um, and the theories differ a little bit, but, but they agree on a few things. One is, is feeling a lack of connection. Um, we're very social creature um, by nature. And so the more that those connections feel frayed, um, the more we're at risk for a whole bunch of bad outcomes, the kinds of outcomes that make us miserable. And and misery is is a path to thinking about dying. Um, And that connection could mean, lack of connection could mean, you know, nobody loves me, but it could also be someone like a soldier who returns from deployment and says, yeah, my spouse loves me, but he or she didn't see what I saw. Um, And Mm -hmm. so there's a gap between us. There's a distance. And so it's not about being unloved necessarily. It's just being distant and distance doesn't work well for us. The other thing that the theories agree on is feeling like a lack of, like a burden, like you're not able to make a contribution. Um, And so this speaks a lot to things like older men um, who retire, didn't do a really good job taking care of their friendships over time, and they're no longer a breadwinner, and they no longer have a purpose or a mission, um, and they figure, what am I doing? You know, my body's not working as well. I'm not making money. I'm having to ask people to take care of me that I used to take care of. I'm just a drag on, on people. Um, and people start to feel these things. When you feel that for a long time and you feel like that's not going to change, both those theories argue, well, this might make someone think about being better off dead, and, and actually come to the conclusion that by doing this, they would be helping the world. Um, and so the irony is a lot of people talk about suicide being selfish. Um, most folks who are dying by suicide are, are, are pretty certain they're doing the world a favor. They're wrong. Um, obviously, those of us left behind know that that's wrong, but, but the person dying um, sees it through sort of suicide-colored glasses, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they see it very differently. But both theories also, theories also agree on one other point. And that's the idea that, again, I was talking about this earlier, suicide's hard. Um, you have to be capable of it. If it was easy, um, more people would do it. Um, it isn't the coward's way out. It isn't simple. Um, it's really hard. Most people can't do it. It's, it's the same way we have to train people in the military oftentimes to learn how to inflict lethal force on others. Um, people often have to build up the ability to do that to themselves and so the theories argue that to be capable, you need to be fearless about death and bodily harm. You need to be able to approach things that most of us would be scared of, right? You need to be tolerant of physical pain, the kinds of things, again, most of us have learned since before a species had language that when you feel this, you shouldn't do that anymore. It's a, it's a clear sign. This is bad. You have to be, over, be able to overcome that. And then what the three step theory introduced to this capability idea is, is what he calls practical capability. You have to have access to and comfort with lethal means, um, and and that goes back, Susanna. What you're asking about: why do people pick different methods? Um, and some people have spent more time around lethal methods and feel more comfortable using them. They know how they work. They have experience using them. When they close their eyes and picture suicide, then it's easier for them to envision using that method, and it's easier for them to actually follow through and doing it. So whereas most of us, by the time we're adolescents, have taken a lot of medication, and so we might be able to envision. Oh, intentional overdose, um, most of us haven't spent a lot of time using firearms, but the folks more mm-hmm. likely to use them are men or service members or all sorts of other demographic groups that die by suicide at an elevated rate.
1: Well, it sort of fits then that we know that um, <clears throat> police are more likely to die by suicide than critical incident. And yep. we we know we've had more suicide deaths of Vietnam vets um, than died in combat or in service. So, I mean, the familiarity and the capacity is sadly very available to certain groups. That's one of the concerns we have.
2: Yeah. And it's important though the capability itself isn't actually dangerous, right? Like those groups need to be familiar yes. with firearms. right? We need our yes. service members to know how to use yes. firearms. The, the problem isn't that that's bad. It's just that when you pair that skill set with a desire to die, it becomes dangerous. So when you're thinking about suicide, you have to let go of the idea of something's good or bad. Whether it's useful depends on how it's being used. And so that comfort with firearms isn't necessarily bad, depending on what it's for, right? Just like fearlessness about uh, bodily injury is probably good for my emergency surgeon if I'm coming in with a wound that I need them to patch up. It's just that when that same person... Um, wants to die, what are they able to do that most of us can't do? What are they familiar enough with to approach that most of us would pull away from?
1: Right, right. I think at one point you used the example that everyone wants to be a good driver, but if you are desperately drunk, then driving or having the capacity becomes extremely lethal.
2: Yes, the idea is that there are certain times a a skill becomes a liability or a practice becomes a liability. Um, And that, you know, goes into how we think about keeping people safe, which is the idea that there are certain times that maybe you don't want to be around that skill or that item because you're you're thinking differently than you normally do. Um, And it's a touchy subject. And so you want to speak about it carefully, but we spend a lot of time, You know, I work in South Mississippi and and we spend a lot of time working particularly with service members talking to them about um, moments when they might want to think about storing their firearms differently or even keeping them away from home. The same way you let somebody hold your keys if you've been uh, drinking, which doesn't mean someone's coming to take your car away or will never drive again or that you're weak. It just means that you're not the same driver when you've been drinking Um, the same way you're not the same gun owner when you're depressed.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I think the examples uh, and the descriptions of the theories fit with what we've often spoke about. And I think one of one of the theorists says it's when the pain really out-trumps connection, and we and there's hopelessness of this ever changing. And often we've talked about you know when the person feels the pain is intolerable, in, inescapable, interminable. The three eyes. Their thinking has become compromised at that point. But it's a very similar um, focus on hopelessness. What you add and what these theories add is when you add hopelessness to capacity to to, um, take one's life or to suffer or tolerate pain with a lethal means, we're in a very dangerous place.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, most people who are feeling that sort of intractable hopelessness aren't capable of dying by suicide. That's why they don't. That's why those numbers we were talking about earlier are the way they are. And most people who are capable aren't experiencing intractable hopelessness. But it's this small group of folks who are both just in in utter agony and also have this ability... (laughs) And those are the ones I'm most scared about. And it doesn't mean I don't take someone seriously about suicide. If they aren't a gun owner or if they're a female or anything else, absolutely not. A thorough risk assessment uncovers all sorts of ways to Mm -hmm. to understand risk. But the idea is that this certain group where I see both the desire and the capability is when I get extremely nervous about what could happen imminently, especially if those folks are articulating a specific plan for what they want to do.
1: Right. We're going to have to take a brief break. Um, You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with Dr. Michael Anestis. He's the author of the book, Guns and Suicide, An American Epidemic, which is what we're really discussing on the show. Now, remember, you can call in with a question or a comment at any time as we're speaking to 1-866-472-5788. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list.
1: These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild in Your Dog with expert, author, and nationally recognized dog trainer, Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Have you ever experienced the joy of living, not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself? Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation, Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen
2: everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
0: listening to psych up live join in our conversation today by calling dr suzanne phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to radiohost phillips at gmail.com now back to psych up live
1: hi welcome back um you're listening to Psychoplus, and we're speaking today about guns and suicide. And we're speaking with Dr. Michael Anestis. He is the author of the new book, Guns and Suicide: An American Epidemic. Mike, let's let's talk about the reality of guns being part of our American culture and how that has, in some way, complicated the situation. Although it's a very important part of the culture.
2: Yeah, certainly. I, I think some folks underestimate how much of our country um, identifies as gun owners. And, and there's no clear stat that tells you exactly what the number is. But, but most estimates are somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of Americans are gun owners. And some folks own quite a few. Um, in our own clinical trial, going, we, we've had folks who've owned um, well over 100 firearms and um, and as a result, we have almost one firearm in this country for every person, which means that there's more firearms in the U.S. than there are in the next five most uh, you know, highest gun ownership rate countries together. Um, so we are inundated with firearms. And it's a it's a big part of some folks' identity and culture. And so one of the things that that's important to remember if you are coming to this conversation from the side of not necessarily being a firearm fan um, is that... These conversations can quickly be seen as an attack on someone's identity or culture. Um, and so you don't have many productive conversations if one person in the conversation feels like that's the way they're being spoken to. And, and we can argue whether or not they should or whatever. But if your goal is suicide prevention, and certainly that's the goal of this conversation today, I think it's important to remember that, that the folks who are most in need of, of safety with respect to firearm suicide – are gun owners themselves. And if the way we're talking about this alienates gun owners, that's not a very productive conversation. Um, we need to find a way to reach out to folks um, with data and with culturally competent conversations so that we can um, – find some common ground because gun owners typically do value safety. They just often think about safety differently than the way, um, Suzanne, that you and I are talking about it today.
1: Right. In fact, I mentioned to Mike over the break that I come from a family where all the uncles and my dad were hunters, which meant that there were guns locked in cases. Um, they made their own ammunition and, um, they, they did skeet shooting, all kinds of things. But even as a youngster, I associated the locked closets with um, keeping the guns from the children, etc. But not until I actually read Mike's book did it occur to me, and I don't know if it would have occurred to them, that the locked Unloaded guns were often also safety against suicide. I just don't think it ever even came to consciousness. so it's it's an interesting reality that this is a country where many people define themselves, their sports, et cetera, with guns, but to recognize and even put words to the fact that you know not you said five percent of people, choose to make a suicide attempt or to die by suicide with a gun, and yet half of those people in total who attempt suicide, who actually die, it's because of guns. So the lethality is just so enormous. Yep. And
2: so the idea is if we accept that gun ownership is a big part of our culture, and then a lot of folks own firearms, what can we do to help gun owners be safe and not die by suicide what what options are available to do that that folks are going to listen to and actually do. And so the, the assumption very quickly for some folks is that, oh, this is another gun grab. This is a conversation about overturning the Second Amendment. Um, and it's not. I mean, w- without question, like there is zero am- ambiguity to this. If if guns disappeared from our country right now, then the suicide rate would, would crater, would go substantially down. But that's not what's going to happen. And so that's not what we're advocating for here. The question is, how can you increase safety? And, and Suzanne, you mentioned safes for um, firearms, and a lot of folks, especially hunters, value safes quite a bit. Um, not as high a percentage use them as, as I would like, um, but the tricky conversation on this is that a lot of different gun owners own different types of firearms for different reasons, mm-hmm. and their openness to safety often hinges on that, and one of the, the things we encounter quite often in my neck of the woods is a lot of folks own particularly handguns um, for self-protection in the home. And now there's data that shows, again, pretty convincingly that, that having a handgun in your home doesn't actually um, protect you from um, invasion, right? It increases the odds of someone in your home dying. Um, but numbers don't tend to sway people that way. And and if you think about it from the perspective of that gun owner, if they believe and they've been trained sometimes by by NRA-sponsored safety classes, in fact, that you need to have a firearm on the ready. So it's in your bedside table and it's loaded to protect Mm -hmm. your family. The notion of someone like me coming in and saying, well, actually what you want to do is have that firearm um, stored unloaded separate from ammunition in a secure location like a lockbox or a gun safe and, and ideally maybe even using a trigger lock or a cable lock. That idea is just not aligned with their definition of safety in part because people don't believe firearms are related to suicide. And they, they believe a number of myths that, if they were true, would argue against everything I'm saying. But they're not. They're myths. Um, and so we're mm-hmm. faced with a situation where um, I think a lot of non-gun owners don't understand the perspective of, of gun owners. And a lot of gun owners, unfortunately, aren't aware of the very definitive connection between firearm access and storage and risk of death by suicide. And so the solutions we have to offer aren't solutions they're necessarily interested in implementing.
1: Mm. Well, I think two statistics that you you have are important that... First of all, you say very clearly the majority of gun owners will never try to kill themselves, and owning a gun does not make a person suicidal. But the data points to the fact that suicidal people in the presence of a gun are more likely to shoot themselves, and they're more likely to die. Now, when we take that fact with other things you're saying alike, suicide's five times more likely in a house where there's a gun, Mike. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the risk is nine times greater if it's unsafely kept and not stored. Yes. So I think when we look at these numbers, I'll I'll be the devil's advocate for a moment. Someone's saying, yes, but I would never be suicidal. And... One aspect of what you wrote in your book, which is so important, is we really never know how we're going to feel two years from now. The, the, it's me against them. Those are the people. Those are the crazy people. Those are, and we're really saying part of the cause of suicide has to do with situations sometimes which drive tremendous hopelessness and pain.
2: Most folks who are, who eventually die by suicide at some point in their lives, hardly a good chunk of their lives, identify with that exact idea you just said, which is, I'd, I'd never be suicidal. Um, and so most people don't think they would ever be suicidal and, and, until they are. And we've got some other data, you know, the books take a while to be written and then published. And so a lot of other data we've has come out since I wrote it. And some of the stuff we've been doing more recently has shown that folks who've known someone who died by suicide or folks who themselves have had thoughts of suicide in the past are far more open to the kinds of mean safety or safe storage practices that we, we promote. And our argument is it's because suicide is more salient to them, right? And so if you think that, look, this isn't relevant to me, guns aren't connected to suicide and I'd never be suicidal, then, then why would you listen to anything I'm saying? And like you were saying, a lot of people don't think they'd be suicidal who eventually are. You, you can't anticipate that ahead of time. Um, and so the argument isn't that we want people to have been suicidal so they relate to it. We certainly don't want people to know people died by suicide, but we need to do a better job in this country of making suicide salient to people. And part of that is talking about it more often Um, and having credible messengers talk about it. You know, gun owners who talk about, hey, I have dealt with this in the past so that someone can see someone who's like them um talking about this, so that it can change their perspective on whether it's relevant to them and they should should do something about it. if If most Americans close their eyes and picture a suicidal person or certainly someone who died by suicide, um, the picture they have would be fundamentally different than the demographics that you and I talked about at the beginning of this conversation. It's in this kind of incorrect perception, I think is driving folks to not listen.
1: Well, and, it, and of course that bears on, let's say, the way men show hopelessness. Very few men call their friends, sit down with a cup of coffee and say, I'm feeling hopeless, I'm feeling despair, I don't know if I want to live. But rather, men engage in risk, very risky behavior. There's over drinking or there's uh, increased road rage or there are risks taken in other ways. Simply, men and women are wired differently, and men show desperation in different ways. But those desperate ways bring a person closer to capacity, which is fearlessness, tolerance for pain, the kinds of things you spoke about that makes a person more capable of considering suicide as an option in the face of pain and hopelessness.
2: Yeah, And I would argue it goes even to a higher level than that. So even if we zoomed out from men, there's a a guy named Joe Franklin. Um, who studied, I think, or published, I think, is the scariest, but one of the most important studies I've ever seen. It shows that we're no better now at prospectively predicting who's going to die by suicide than we were in the 1950s. It's just above a coin flip. And what that tells us is that all the things we think about, depression, substance use, desperation, unemployment, divorce, all these things that are obviously also very important to suicide because no one's saying it's just about guns. It's, It's all those things, too. But all those things tell us basically nothing about who's going to, To die by suicide. We're not very good at it, at picking up the signs. And then if you zoom into what you said about men, it's even harder because um, they express things differently. And in fact, men are far less likely to engage with mental health resources in general. And if they do, they're more likely to underreport their thoughts of suicide. So if if all of our interventions are about waiting for someone to come tell me, I'm thinking about dying and then seeking out help and getting directed to evidence-based help, um, that's a heck of a lot of barriers, right? And so you start to think about desire and capability and saying, well, I'm not arguing we should ignore desire. We should keep doing everything we're doing with it and do more of it. Um, I'm arguing that we've been ignoring capability and that when you talk about the specific method and you implement things to lower someone's capability at the population level, you make everyone less able to act on their thoughts. So if I don't know that they're suicidal, they're still less likely to die. And what I mean by that is, Let's make them have less practical capability. Let's do something about their access to firearms when they're suicidal so that if I don't know they're suicidal and they don't tell their buddy or their spouse that they're suicidal and they don't get any help, they're still more likely to be alive because they don't have the easy access to the firearm at that worst moment. And rather than becoming that status, someone who dies, um, they fall more into that group of folks who. never attempt, or they choose a lower lethality method and, and they survive and, and don't die. But as I say that, keep in mind that most folks don't just find another way. By far the most common myth I encounter is if you stop them from using a the gun, they'll just find another way. Um, the data argue forcefully against that over and over and over again. But even if we ignore data and just said they are going to find another way, they're going to find a way they're more likely to survive, and so. When you're thinking about protecting these folks from dying, you have to consider everything, Suzanne, you were saying about how folks express themselves or don't express themselves and figure out if my intervention is, should it be focused on them coming forward with their thoughts and feelings or should it be on protecting them whether or not I know what their feelings are in the first place?
1: Mm-hmm. So let's talk then about what you suggest in the book as mean safety.
2: Yeah, sure. And so mean safety simply means making a specific method for suicide either less deadly or less available for an attempt. And so it's not specific to guns. There are lessons from around the world and across different methods. And so what when mean safety works the most is when the method in the specific area you're using it is highly common, highly deadly, and readily accessible. And so in the U.S., firearms check all those boxes, right? Because of all those numbers we were talking about. And so there's a lot of ways you can do that. The most straightforward way to be like, well, there's no more guns. There's no more access. That's not happening. That's not what's on the table. And so I propose a whole bunch of different ways. And so do a lot of other people. I still don't want to create the impression that I've developed mean safety. Um, uh, There's a whole lot of folks suggesting and studying this. Um, But what I'm advocating for here is a couple of things. One could be some legislation, but legislation that doesn't threaten the second amendment, but has evidence showing that, It lowers the overall suicide rate, not just the firearm suicide rate. I don't want to change how they die. I want to stop them from dying. It's got to lower the overall rate. And that's things like universal background checks, mandatory waiting periods, permit to purchase laws, and extreme risk protection orders. Um, But there's also non-legislative approaches like I'm studying in the clinical trial I'm doing now, which is getting folks to store their firearms more safely in general, even if they're not suicidal now, because again, who knows when they will be in the future and we don't make our best calls about safety when we're upset. And also just getting them to think about, well, if I do get upset or someone else in my my family or my household is, um, maybe I need to store it away from home temporarily. Um, And that's what mean safety is. It's simply trying to set yourself up so that in your worst moment, um, you're less likely to have ready access to something that's almost certain to kill you.
1: Mm -hmm. One thing that really um, struck me was the simple example of bridges that had been noted as places where people jumped to commit suicide, and that when they changed the um, the stanchions, etc., on those bridges, the numbers dropped, and you didn't see an increase in other ways of committing suicide or taking one's life. So that, uh, in a very simple way, just making things safer really does deter suicide. That's what you're suggesting with the the possible legislation and some of the um, unloaded, locked, safed means with with the firearms.
2: Yes, exactly. And with the bridge data, um, you know, it's tricky because no one bridge impacts the suicide rate very heavily, right? Even right, the most right. common bridge, even the Golden Gate Bridge, has a small number of folks. Um, but the flip side of it is that. Um, some folks out of New Zealand published a study uh, you know about a decade or so ago showing also that when you take a barrier away from a place that used to have a lot of jumps the, the, the deaths come back um, mm. so those you know the bridges are like you said a straightforward and very you know visceral and easy to understand example of how this could work um, but it 's also an example of a method that isn 't going to have a huge impact on the overall national suicide rate because not that many folks in the U.S. are dying by jumping. That's still right. a worthwhile cause. Any life saved is vital and important. Right. Um, but where you're going to see us bend the curve on the suicide rate is when you focus on the method that causes the most deaths. And, and in the U.S., that's the story of firearms. In other countries, it's a different story. And that's I'm why he gonna... has worked on different methods elsewhere.
1: I'm going to stop you for a minute. We're going to have to take a brief break, and we're going to come back and talk about mean safety and more. Even listening to Psych Up Live, we're here with Dr. Michael Onestis, author of the new book, Guns and Suicide, An American Epidemic. Stay with us. <music>
0: The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Do you understand your feline friends as well as you'd like? Why do they behave the way they do? If behavior issues get out of hand, how do you fix things? Get the answers and more when you listen to Cat Talk Radio with host Molly DeVos. We'll give you the straight facts offer some tried and tested ideas and alert you as to what's being done in this country and worldwide to save cats and shelter challenges. Cat Talk Radio, every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
0: on the voice america variety channel
1: every day we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon
2: that can go way over our heads now there's a show that brings it all back down to earth tune in for today tomorrow's technologies with host jose negron we'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world We'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron. Live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: And we're talking about guns and suicide, and we were just talking about means safety. And I asked Mike, since he writes that lowering the national suicide rate requires means safety, if he could explain that to us a bit more.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I really truly believe that by far our most valuable and effective tool available to lower our suicide rate, which has gone up every single year since 2005, our most valuable tools mean safety and specifically focused on firearms. Um, and I base that off of examples throughout history and other cultures across methods um, and so a few examples jump out that I thought it's worth taking a moment to talk about really quickly. And the first one is from the mid-20th century in the UK, where uh, the example I often give is Sylvia Plath, who's a famous poet and novelist, um, who died by suicide in the UK by sticking her head in the, in, in the oven. And, I, you know, you don't typically like to talk about methods and, and, and celebrities. I'm certainly not trying to sensationalize anything, but I mention that because it stands out as unusual in most people's minds, but it was by far the most common method back then. And the reason why is because the carbon monoxide content in domestic gas was so high. So people weren't doing that to burn themselves. They're doing it because they inhaled toxic gas and died. And so around the middle of the 20th century, the UK government said, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to be pumping toxic gas into people's homes. Um, And so they detoxified it. And the suicide rate by that method plummeted by about 80 to 90%. But what's more important is that the overall, method, overall suicide rate in the U.K. dropped between 30 and 40%. So suicide rates by other methods stayed the same. They didn't just find other methods. They just stopped dying by the most common method, and their suicide mm-hmm. rate w- went way down and stayed down.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that's one example. Another example is more recent, and that's in the last, since th- really the turn of the century over in Sri Lanka. They were having a terrible problem with folks dying, using pesticides. And they implemented mean safety in a couple ways. One way is they went around to a lot of farms and they, they helped build block boxes for the pesticides. So it was just a little bit more complicated to get to them. They made them a little bit less accessible, which is similar to what you and I were talking about with, with locking up your firearms. And mm-hmm. they also just took the most lethal uh, brands of pesticide and just took them off the market. And, and what they saw was the overall suicide rate in Sri Lanka dropped by 50%. Wow. Um, so again, not a small drop and not just a drop in one method, the overall rate cratered. Um, but the last example is most relevant to what you and I are talking about, and that comes from the Israeli Defense Force. Um, again, since the turn of the century, and, and um, for folks not familiar, in in Israel there is mandatory military service for young adults, and and they noticed in the IDF or the Israeli Defense Force that this group of sort of 18 and 24 year olds were were dying at a really elevated rate on the weekends, typically Saturdays, I believe, um, with their military issued firearm which they brought home with them and so they just shifted the policy and said look you can't bring your firearms home on holiday or weekend and the suicide rate amongst those those young soldiers uh dropped by 40 percent. so again not Mm. small reductions and they didn't just start dying by other methods or on other days They, they stopped dying um and so when I say I think mean safety can make a meaningful impact, I'm not just making this up because I have a belief or an agenda about firearms, and I'm not under the impression that firearms is the answer for every place around the world. Japan, for existence, there's very few firearms and a high suicide rate. Yeah, they would need a different solution than we would need. The answer isn't the same for everyone. It, it means safety works. When you take the most common, highly lethal method in a specific area and you make accessibility or lethality go down um And sure, eventually, something else may take its place. Um, Probably not something as lethal as firearms. Um, But at that point, you'd start talking about mean safety for that method. Um, And it's important to note, though, when I say this stuff, Suzanne, I'm not saying do this. And ignore depression. A lot of folks hear me talking about guns, and they think I'm only talking about guns, or I'm saying nothing else is important. I just really want to harp on the fact that I'm not. Um, I I train our clinicians in our community clinic on suicide risk assessment here all the time, and we're certainly not ignoring their mental health problems or their life struggles. The idea is that what we've been doing is good, and it's not good enough. Um, We're not doing this with firearms, so keep doing the other stuff. That's important too, but that other stuff does not wipe away the importance of the gun. Um, We also have to directly address firearms with mean safety.
1: Well, when I think of the been, being in the field for many many years and spending every Saturday before Thanksgiving at the Society for the Prevention of Suicide the foundation, um, it's a survivor day. The room is packed with hundreds of people who have lost a mother, a brother, a child, etc. And when you put it in perspective for for all of us to hear that For all of our efforts and even for peer counseling and groups where you see people talk about what their experience has been to lose a child or lose a spouse, we have not dropped the rates at all. So as you say, do we have to continue with that kind of intervention? It's incredibly important. But without addressing the availability of a lethal means of suicide, I don't know that the rates would drop.
2: I feel fairly confident they won't, and I think we have decades of data that back that up, and that's not an insult to the work that folks are doing with with psychotherapy and support groups or whatever you're talking about in any given conversation. Um, All of that is wonderfully valuable. It's just insufficient. You don't get a full answer when you only address half the equation. We're only addressing desire. We're not addressing capability. So you and I are only talking about capability in this particular conversation, but I don't think either you nor I are thinking that's all we should do. We're just saying we haven't been doing it, and it hasn't been working. So perhaps we should.
1: It would be great if gun advocates, a really terrific thing would be for gun advocates to advocate for mean safety, because if some respected member of your association um, really believes that we can enjoy guns as part of our culture and our uh, more sport, but we also are accounting for the potential lethality of them, that would be a terrific thing.
2: Yeah, I think it's vital. You're not going to solve the problem of firearm suicide without firearm owners, and you're not going to get a message across about a thorny issue with sort of messengers who aren't credible to the folks who need to hear it. And so, you know, I had a meeting with the Mississippi department of mental health, who's um, being very forward thinking about this, this issue. And and we were talking about plans. And one of the plans is to get exactly what you're saying, credible folks involved, whether you're talking about law enforcement, folks from the military, folks who are concealed carry trainers, but get folks who are relatable to talk about this, because, you know, certainly in a place like where I live, I'm not going to be the most effective messenger. Um, I'm the fast-talking Yankee nerd who's talking about numbers, and that's not what people <laughs> want to hear, right? Um, and so if you want to reach a community, you need to work with that community. And the firearm owners is a diverse group. It's, a, it's not one community, right? It, it means different things in different parts of the country. And so at your local level, you need to work with folks who understand and relate to the people you're trying to reach. Otherwise, your message is not going to be effective. The same way... Anyone who's listening here doesn't feel compelled by folks they find uncredible when they're talking about changing something important about their lives.
1: Now, has there been some coupling of the uh, the folks working like yourself dealing with suicide prevention with some of the gun associations? There have there's been
2: a number of, of methods. Uh, people have done that. Um, the data on how effective these collaborations have been isn't clear yet. And, and there's always the question of who to collaborate with. Is it a gun lobby? Is it a gun manufacturer? Is it gun owners? Is it guns uh, shops? Is it uh, gun safety trainers? And I think a lot of different people about around the country are trying different methods. And it'll be interesting to see um, what works the best or whether there is one particular approach that stands out. But yes, different groups, whether you're talking about the American Association of Suicidology, who I work with quite a bit and is doing a lot of this type of work, or the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, um, or a lot of not national groups like those, but more local groups. um, There are plenty of collaborations where you're seeing a lot more representation of multiple perspectives on the team that's trying to develop the intervention or to study the problem. Um, And I think that's, again, super important in terms of of people taking us seriously and understanding that, you know, I, I mean what I say when I'm not here to just come and get your guns or to criticize your culture, even if I don't like guns, or even if I don't relate to your culture, none of that matters. We're all here about preventing suicide. And we can do that by talking about a difficult issue in a way that respects people's perspectives.
1: I had mentioned to Mike at the beginning, um, before we started the show, that living in New York, I was aware of legislation about stricter gun laws, and I really decided to go take a look at where in New York did we have um, the highest rates of death with guns, and much to my surprise... The high, those counties with the highest rates, it was accounted for by gun suicides, and I thought this never gets press. So one of the reasons for our show today and your work, Michael, is to really raise our consciousness about this as an aspect um, of of gun regulation to some degree that that we can save lives. If you, I want to ask you to give our um, listeners a take home message. What would you like our listeners to leave this show with? I would
2: like folks to leave the show with an understanding that when we talk about gun deaths in America, we're talking about suicide, that the method matters and that we need to have conversations about how to keep firearm owners safe and talk specifically about the firearms if we ever want to stop the trend of continuously increasing suicide rates in our country. People underestimate the problem and they ignore the solution and we need to change both of those things.
1: Okay. Now, how would folks find your book and contact you, Mike? Certainly.
2: The book can be found pretty much anywhere you'd find any other book, Amazon.com being an example. Um, But really, there's no trick to it. Wherever you're typically buying books, that's where you'll find it, whether it's Kindle or hard, or hard copy form. Um, in terms of reaching me, um, I respond to email like any academic does, which is sort of obsessively and, and, and maniacally. Um, so, michael.anestis at USM. That's for University of Southern is by far the easiest way to reach me. And you can find me. I'm a social media presence. I'm psych brown bag on Twitter and um, my lab, the suicide and emotion dysregulation labs on Facebook. So um, we respond. We're interested in your perspective and, and we want to make a difference. So feel free to reach out.
1: Terrific. Uh, Mike, I want to thank you for joining me on Psych Up Live today, as well as for your tireless work in researching the relationship of guns and suicide. Your mission is really a mission to save lives. It's it's a very important one. Thank you so much for all our listeners and from me. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. I want to thank my listeners and remind you that this show and any prior show can be heard as a podcast on my host site. This show will be a podcast by 6 p.m. Eastern tonight. It can be accessed on your iPhone, on the app for iTunes, Sketcher, etc. Feel free to drop me a comment or a question at RadioHostPhilips at gmail.com. But until next week, remember, take care, thanks, be safe, and be listening.